Hey, I'm Franco Fubini, and welcome to Natura's podcast, Transform the Food System. Every other week, I'll be talking to a different guest about how we can use our collective power to build a better food system. As Natura's founder, I'll be calling on our community of chefs and growers, as well as anthropologists, authors, scientists, and sustainability experts to talk about how our everyday food choices can bring about radical change. Like us, Dan Barber is on a mission to raise the bar in flavor as he shakes up the way food is grown for good. You might know him from the award-winning Netflix series, Chef's Table, where he showcased the efforts of farmers, ecologists, and nutritionists through one powerful medium, the plate. His conviction that chefs hold tremendous power to enact change through flavor holds a central line at his two restaurants and in his book, The Third Plate. His most recent endeavor is Row 7 Seeds, a seed company on a mission to democratize flavor. A vital component for building a better food future, I'm talking seeds with the incredible chef, author, and flavor pioneer. Hey, Dan, are you at Stone Barns? Or... I am. I'm at Stone Barns. How are the, this new format? How's that going on? Uh, yeah, so far, good. I mean, you know, we're, we're into our fourth chef, resident chef, uh, Victoria Blamey, from doing, doing Chilean reinterpretation of, of indigenous Chilean food. It's fantastic, really delicious. Um, and, um, uh, you know, the team is, is pumped up. Next week, we start barbecue. Uh, with pitmaster Brian Furman, uh, reinterpreting a barbecue for, for the Hudson Valley, keeping it very classic uh, and traditional, but also through the lens of, of ingredients that we're growing here. So it's, I'm, I'm psyched. Very, That's very, very good. cool. How long are the residencies? Uh, about three, three or four weeks. Yeah. The Brian's barbecue is three weeks. You know, some of the other chefs are four weeks. We've got, got some exciting chefs hopefully lined up for season two, which is going to start in June. So all good, yeah, and the response has been great. Nice. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it up with the family. Okay, yeah. Tell me, tell me when. Well, love it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um, I think you're incredibly with the work that you've done over the last God knows how many years. So well placed to kind of talk about, you know, talk about how how consumers really can. Um, can make their own personal changes towards a better food system and the impact that they can have. Uh, and I think a lot of, certainly a lot of what you've done has been very inspiring for us in the industry uh, in terms of really driving that conversation forward. Um, there's, there's a huge amount that you've worked on, but really I kind of wanted to focus with you on row seven um, because I think that seeds are such a critical part of building a better, a better food system. Um, so really wanted to focus our conversation on that. And I guess wanted to start with, you started Row 7 Seeds in, in 2010. And was just curious, what was it that you couldn't find? Or what was the, what was the spark that, that, that drove this desire to, or, or this idea to start Row 7? Well, you know, I mean, we, we were dubbed a farm to table restaurant. And, and I'm sitting, more than that, I'm sitting in a in a kitchen that's in the middle of the farm. So we, we, we were deep into the connection to a farm. Blue Hill Farm is a dairy farm in Western Massachusetts. That's my family farm. And we have a network of 60 other local farms that we work with, uh, some much more than others. But overall, we have a, an incredible network of, of farmers. So I was since the beginning of Blue Hill. And we got to know... Uh, not only the farmers themselves, but the farming practices and started to recognize some of the flavors that were coming out of these farms that were 
distinguishing. And, and what that led to was an understanding that certain farming practices made huge differences, but so did certain seeds, certain varieties. Yeah, I started putting that together. And if there's an aha moment, it was totally unconnected to that. It was a chance encounter, or maybe everything I just said prepped, locked and loaded me for the encounter that I had, which was right behind me about 10 years ago when I invited a breeder named Michael Mazurik, a squash breeder from Cornell University uh, into the kitchen. And I, he had just eaten dinner and I'd wanted to meet him. I heard he was a up and coming, really brilliant, uh, breeder. And so I said, I, we were, it was like really late in the morning, you know, late in the evening, early morning, even. And one of my cooks was prepping a, you know, butternut squash for the next day's service. And I just looked at him. I said, you know what? You're such a great squash breeder. Why don't you breed a butternut squash that actually tastes good? And basically I was saying, why are we adding maple syrup and honey and brown sugar to, to squash, to like eke out flavor or caramelize whatever sugar's there. It's like, this is crazy. Like, let's just breed something that, you know, let's create something that just, just is great. I was really just a kind of provocative off the cuff comment. And he got very serious. He like looked right at me. I'll, I always say this is like a before and after moment in my cooking. Uh, because he looked at me, he said, in all my years of breeding, no one has ever asked me to breed for flavor. And that was, you know, lights out, curtain down because it's just like, well, what are they asking you to breed for? You know, and then of course you learn what's what maybe to be expected, which is like, you know, breeders are talking to the industry. The industry, you know, they want they want shelf life, they want uniformity, they want yield, 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 yield. And so uh, the idea that chefs weren't at the table for that conversation seemed ludicrous. And then uh, even more, the possibility that we could begin to write a recipe for a dish uh, from the genetic level, you know, pre-farm. And third, you start to realize that like, if you're zeroing in on just the farmer, uh, which is, which is, you know, of great importance and, and, and critical even, but you start to also realize that like, the cake's already been baked if the farmer's using a seed that doesn't have the genetics to be expressed through the great farming. Uh, so you could have a, a, a great ver seed variety and poor farming genetics won't get expressed. But if you have, you know, if you have poor genetics and great farming, the genetics won't be expressed. And that's a point I just didn't really understand. Uh, and part of the reason that chefs, as you know, sort of genuflect uh, over heirloom varieties of this and heritage of that is largely because not that long ago, these were varieties that were selected for flavor. And so, uh, you know, that that's, then they were saved. They were selected and saved and passed down through generations because it tasted good, you know? So that, that kind of um, uh, admiration for the past is important because those are genetics are important, but for the future, you know, if you dealing closely with farmers, you start to realize that it's a very privileged uh, position to be, to support. You know, heirlooms are hard to produce; they're they're hard to grow. Uh, they yield less, and they're expensive. So they're actually more for the white tablecloth one percenters than they are for the mainstream food culture. And that's that that is my 
you know, that's, that's my takeaway from all of this is that, is that in working with breeders like Michael and others, you start to realize that this whole idea that, that to taste good, you have to have low yields or, or old shit. It's like, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's like, we can, we can produce very delicious nutrient dense, dense vegetables and grains uh, and do it uh, with, with good yield for the farmer. And, and we can democratize these flavors, you know? So that's why we started Row 7. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's fascinating. I, you know, I went through a similar, similar journey where I was, I was sourcing for flavor in the early days, but we still do. Purely, uh, I, I, I always say this, is purely a very selfish, selfish need, right? Just wanted to eat really good quality products and knew that they were there. And then over time started realizing the importance of seed, uh, the importance of that, of that varietal. And I, I talk quite a bit at Natura internally, uh, that same analogy, right? That you can have, if you start with a really poor seed, it doesn't matter how good the soil is, how great the farming is, you're never going to get a good quality product out, uh, out of it. I guess what I'm, what I'm curious of is um, seed really equals variety. And so how do, we get, how do we get consumers to really understand the importance of variety, particularly because flavor carries nutrition with it as well. So it's not just something that tastes amazing, but there's other, there's other benefits hidden in that, in, you know, in that flavor, really. Well, I don't know about hidden. I would say that they're on your tongue. I mean, I, you know, it's more, more, maybe even more than you just said. It's, a, it's like flavor is flavonoids. Flavonoids is, is vitamins and minerals. And, you know, it's a suite of, uh, you know, of genetic expression that needs to be protected and, and selected for. Um, so, yeah, when you're selecting for something that tastes good, you're selecting for, for medicine, nutrition. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with you. This is a reminder that you're listening to Transform the Food System with me, Franco Fubini, and today I'm talking to Dan Barber. I remember having having a dinner at, at Blue Hill a couple of years ago and uh, eating the the honey nut to to go back to your, you know, the, the that aha moment, I guess, if if you can point to one. And there was a you know a lot of that meal was about education. Uh, a lot of it was about education and, and even from my perspective within the industry and, and somebody, you know, dedicating a lot of my time on produce, uh, it was very evident that what you were doing there was a lot of it was just teaching uh, consumers about the whole plant, about, you know, the root system. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm curious to think about your views. You know, you, you're expanding uh, you're expanding these seed varieties uh, through mass market channels like Wegmans, which I think is fascinating. Uh, and just curious how your thinking has evolved in terms of that education and the consumer. Uh, how do we get the consumer to really value, you know, a badger flame beet versus a beetroot that they find at the supermarket? Because how you do it at, the, at Blue Hill is obviously uh, one way, but how do we extend that into a mass market? Yeah, right. Well, you know, look, let's take that that conversation off the cuff conversation I had with Michael Mazurik and challenged him to create a butternut squash that actually tasted good. Well, the result is what you're talking about, the honey nut. Not you're fast forwarding through 10 years of of trial and 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 tasting and and of growing with other farmers uh to to trial it in the field. Uh but what ended up happening is uh Michael created a uh a, him and his team created a shrunken butternut squash 
which for a while was a trial number and is now called the honey nut. Uh, it is uh, about 40% smaller than the regular butternut squash. Uh, the taste is fabulous. I mean, it's jaw-droppingly delicious. I cook it here. We, we put nothing on it. We don't add butter, hardly add any salt. Uh, you know, it speaks for itself and it sort of says it all. We just sort of tend to serve it unplugged because it, it, sh it is so powerful expression of what happens when genetics are, are really selected for. Uh, the genetics of, you know, flavor is, is really the, the determining factor. It's just stunning. But the, the real part of the story is what you just alluded to, which is like, you know, how do you get into the mainstream? Well, you know, I started talking about it a lot many years ago, a few years, not that many years ago, four years ago, five years ago, I started sending it to chefs and they were cooking with it and social meeting it. And all of a sudden a farmer or two like started growing it and it appeared at the Union Square far Farmer's Market first with two, two farmers. And that was, uh, I think five years ago. And today, um, last month it, it, uh, or, or a couple months ago this fall, it arrived in Costco. Uh, it's, it, it is sold in Whole Foods and Trader Joe's. It's sold coast to coast to coast on thousands. It's grown on thousands of acres. And your question is, you know, how do you get more people aware of this thing? Well, if you follow that trajectory, uh, it started really with chefs, you know, and, and the advocacy of chefs. Um, which I think is a key uh, ingredient here in, in creating kindling and creating interest and creating spark. From there, you need a variety that farmers are going to have confidence to grow. Uh, so farmers have the confidence to grow something if A, uh, there's a market, and B, can they make money growing? And those two things are quite linked. Uh, and that was the success of Honey Nut, and you mentioned Badger Flame, which is a beat that row seven champion and in both cases that's what happened you've got a venn diagram where where flavor but yield for the farmer meet and that's why these varieties get successful uh, so that that's the ticket uh, you know today the the that challenge from michael mazurik shrunken butternut squash that became the honey nut that is now grown coast to coast is also called the money nut by farmers uh, because not only does it yield well but they command a, a, a greater price for it because the demand is so great. That's perfect. And my art, my, my theory of, the of this kind of theory of change or whatever is it starts with chefs because we curate this stuff every day. And if we, if we, if we connect to something that we're excited about, we're like pit bulls, you know, chefs are pit bulls, you know, when they, when any, something makes us look like better chefs, we forget we knock down walls, you know? And so, I think that's a great strategy for a food system that uh, need, desperately needs to change. Uh, we may, in fact, instead of looking to uh, food scientists uh, and nutritionists, uh, we should probably look to, to chefs to lead the way. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly what you described to me is certainly revolutionary. Like when, when you get into mass market, uh, that's really when things uh, become incredibly exciting. Yeah, I agree with you. You know what the mass market said about the honey nut when they first saw it? The the, the I won't say the company, but a huge, enormous, the mo, one of the most enormous uh, market, supermarket chains in 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 the country. Just they looked at it and said, "That's a that's not a butternut squash. That's a shrunk. And why why would someone pay twenty uh, percent more for thirty percent less? That'll never fly." Another one, another another distributor said, um, uh, "We don't have a skew for that. 
our skew for butternut squash is X number of centimeters by X number of centimeters. And that's how we do the calculations for distribution. And, and that's how they do it. So when you introduce something as earth shattering as a butternut squash to actually tastes good, forget it, man. It like blows people's minds. Well, these guys are, of course, all wrong, you know, as generally men tend to be when they get all like mansplaining about stuff. But they, you know, they're obviously they're wrong because because flavor wins the day, you know. And of course, they figured out how to create another skew. But anyway, that's the story of, of Honey Nut and the trajectory continues because this every year it just the sales are are through the roof. And you think is that the best place to kind of engage with the consumer? Just, you know, pure and simple, you know, the right variety that tastes incredible uh, and make it as readily available as possible. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I just read that more uh, now 62% of meals are, are eaten outside of the home. 62%. It's crazy. It's crazy. And, and it's sort of ironic that the same week that that's that, report came out, there was a study from Tufts School of Nutrition that the single least nutritious meal you can have, they ranked 10, was in restaurants. So you've got 60% of the population eating more than, more, eating all their, eating the majority of their meals in restaurants. And you've got the number one least healthy option for food, restaurants. Oof. So you know, I, I, I like to think the Honey Nut's a great example because it's so obvious, like, oh, my God, why would you not fucking choose this? I mean, you, you, you create, you know, it's just crazy. On the other hand, uh, you know, you need to you need to involve chefs uh, 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 not just white tablecloth chefs, but, you know, chef, you know, restaurant service, uh, what do you call it? fast casual and, and fast food even that adopts into this because that's where the world you know, that's what the world revolves around. Um, but it can happen. You know, it's not it's not daunting. You know, it's not, you know, I, there, there was, I was just, someone just showed me something I'd forgotten about the other day. In, in, um, in 2009, the 2009, 2000, 2012, Time Magazine came out with an article about um, the, 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 the history of kale, the recent history of kale in this country. And they they called us the 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 ground zero of the great kale leap forward, uh, because when we opened in two thousand, I don't think it's given us too much credit. But when we opened in two thousand and four here at at Stonebars, you know, we were committed to taking everything local. And at that point, you know, the farm in the winter was like it was kale or bust, you know, or, or storage crops, you know. So if you want a green material to be cooking, you had kale. So I was like, I had kale everywhere on the menu, everywhere, everywhere. And it really forced me to come up with some, some very delicious, uh, you know, iterations on kale. But apparently, you know, from, from there, from the Time Magazine, they did this, like, they, they tracked it. And it's like, uh, um, in 2013, it was 2012 or 2013, it landed in McDonald's. And what they did is they took from 2014, 2013, 2004 to 2013, and that trajectory went, they, they, they said the epicenter is Blue Hill and Stonebards, and then it do, 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 do out in concentric circles where eventually it bleeds into the everyday, you know, fast food culture at McDonald's. So I, that's a, you know, that's the same kind of model. Uh, and it works where McDonald's is serving kale salads. It's like, and McDonald's today in 2021 is the number one purchaser of kale in the world. <laughs> you know, so go figure that. I mean, shit. 
incredible. Yeah, certainly when I was growing up, uh, kale wasn't on the menu at McDonald's, without a doubt. Me neither, man. Me neither. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it goes back to, again, to your point about the influence of, of chefs, right? And I, it's one of the things that I think about a lot when I see a lot of the restaurants that we supply in, in, in all regions, right? Europe, US, where a lot of the ingredients that are going into the kitchen are not responsibly sourced. Uh, now, we obviously have part of that responsibility because we, you know, we, we supply those ingredients. Um, we do it as a level, as a, as a service, um, but I've always wanted to work, uh, you know, to utilize that volume that we have on these kind of industrially farmed basics, as we call them, um, and improve the sourcing, improve the quality so that we, we move them in the right direction. Um, but I've been, I've been battling on, on, on the restaurant side, how do we get chefs to be more responsible uh, with the sourcing, right? With the ingredients that are coming into the kitchens. Because even at very top restaurants, you get a lot of industrially farmed product coming in. Um, and I'm well aware that, you know, price is a consideration for all of us running a business, right? You need to make the numbers work. Um, but taking that a little bit of, of a step forward, is, is there anything that you think that the restaurant industry could be doing more of or should be doing um, to drive this kind of revolution, this, this change? Because obviously, it's very evident that chefs have a huge influence uh, over consumer culture. Yeah, I mean, I'm, a, you know, I'm kind of an evangelist for chefs and restaurants in this area. You know, yeah, they use a lot of a lot of produce that is that is raised from is grown far away and 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 in monoculture and you know an industrial um, ownership behind it behind the farming entity, but. I, you know, they, I think it's almost all of it's driven by price uh, and convenience. You know, chefs, you think chefs are, you know, chairman of the board and we're all, we always get the spotlight, but most of the time we're not in control. You know, it's like the owners are in control. Landlords in control more and more, you know, it's like, or used to be before COVID, you know, it's like, it's rent, it's payroll and insurance and it's food. You know, and rent's not going anywhere and payroll and insurance, you know, all those things are going up. So what are you supposed to do with the food? You know, that, that's the place everybody goes to cut. It's just, it's just the economic, you know that, the economics is slim margins, slim margins. So I, I, I don't know that like, you know, that that's saying that, you know, there's a lot more that could be done uh, and there is, but, but, you know, pointing a finger at the purchases is just hard, hard to do for me because I know the business so well. And I know that I'm in such a rarefied position. As I said, I'm sitting in the middle of a farm and, and my family farm is Blue Hill. So I've got, I've got it. I've got a very distinct lane. And for most chefs, and I've been there because I used to be a chef, you know, uh, you know, at, at, a, at a restaurant. I mean, I've been, been working at restaurants all my life and, and I know the pressure and I know the, the, the margins. And so I think overall, we tend to do what we can do, you know, we're sort of goosing this thing along so we can influence the public to pay a little bit more for the kind of ingredients we want to work with. I think overall, that's true. Yeah, there's some bad apple chefs, sure. Um, there's some, you know, bad apple doctors, lawyers, politicians, too. You know? I don't know. It's overall, I think the chef is the, the purest expression of, of, of hedonism and joy, which is where we should be going. Because this isn't in the end about environmentalism or nutrition or anything. It's just about joy. And that's that the nice correspondence here is that what we're talking about with these ingredients is is pure hedonism. You know, that's a that's a great 
ad, you know, it's a great, important lesson. And as, you know, what is it? Michel Bra, the great French chef said, chefs are, are marchand de bonheur. You know, we're, we're merchants of happiness and you can't, you know, doctors aren't, nutritionists aren't, politicians aren't, you know, so we got something there that we, we need to double down on. Um, you know, so sometimes we can't hit the mark for a lot of reasons. Yeah. And I think, you know, flavor, flavor is such an emotional connection. Um, that's something that I've, I've, again, we've, we've noticed is that's what really gets the demand going, right? If you can, if you can, if you can connect with somebody at that emotional level and flavor is what does that, right? You have a, a, an incredible peach and yeah, that, that's what blows your mind. That's what, you know, forces you to say, I want to eat another peach like this. I don't want to eat something that tastes, that's tasteless. Yeah. But um, see, chefs know that so well, right? So, you know, if it was up to us, we'd be serving 30 people a night, uh, you know, and we'd be giving them a peach experience and we'd be out there ourselves cutting the peach and explaining where it came from and giving to them. I, I can't name one chef who wouldn't want to do that. But how do you pay the rent? How do you pay the employees? How do you pay yourself? So that, that you know, and then you're not in control. And, uh, you know, you get you get in control restaurants that are, you see, you know, this better than I do. The restaurants that are chef driven, as in chefs either have an ownership stake or have a personality that it's like, like, like the owner allows them to take over the place. It always is better run. Always. It's always better food, uh, obviously better food, but it's always better run. Uh, there's always something transcendent about going into a place that's a chef driven place. Always. Um, so, you know, if we're up to me, I. If we're up to me in the future, I would, you know, as we as we circle out of a pandemic that that I think we're beginning to realize is very closely associated with our diets. I mean, you know, you know, while while that hasn't been talked about a lot, I think it will be. I mean, I think what we're going to see as we we circle out of this is is COVID deaths are ninety two percent underlying conditions. Of the ninety two percent underlying conditions, ninety five percent are diabetes, obesity, hypertension. That's all three are food, the diets, this is diets. It's like, you know, so basically our diets are killing us. That's what it is, you know, our diets are killing us. And, and we need chefs to take control of the food system. You know, that's what we need to do. We need chefs to lead the way. It's like, get everyone else out of the way. We should take it over. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know, you know, there's so many ways to, to think about that in the, in the future that I think is powerful, but we've we got a country that's, that's, you know, in a crisis, health crisis, and it's all pointing to food. So these, these people who are producing food, like especially food processing and the way that is being sold to the American public is, is a crime. Like I've got blood on their hands. Now look at this last year. That's what, that's what that shows. Um, so I like to think that change is coming here, and I wouldn't mind putting a little bit more power in chefs instead of keeping their brilliance, creativity, and advocacy in in four walls. Uh, you know, let's get this out there a little bit more. Uh, and I think you know, there's a lot of ways to do that with non for profits, with 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 traditional government routes that could be very exciting. So it's the kind of stuff I'd like to work on. Yeah, I mean, I I, I couldn't agree more. I think just even having you know having young young children. Um, just raises the level at which the importance of the importance of the food that you put into your body. And, yeah. I, you know, I just moved to the U S a year ago and I, I lived here for close to 10 years, a long time ago. Um, 
And one of the things that I was very conscious about in moving here was ensuring that there were certain things that I had access to. So making sure that the dairy that we were putting into the house, into the fridge, came from somewhere that I knew was, was good. And same thing with the breads and the grains, uh, because I know how easy it is, particularly in the U.S., um, to very quickly uh, be consuming incredibly um, damaging food. And, you know, having kids and all that, that's one of the things coming from Europe, which is a little bit harder to do. Um, yeah, it was something that was very much front of mind for me and uh, for me and the family. Um, it's a it's a it's a very, very difficult, very difficult uh, situation here in the U.S. with the, the, the food system, the industrialization of it, the, the processing. And, yeah. And again, this idea of cheap food, right, going back to the butternut squash and, and the honey nut, right? this idea of why would you pay? You know, why would you pay 20% more uh, for something that's 30% smaller? And it's, well, there's a, there's a yeah. lot of reasons why you'd want to do that. Do you think on that, do you think, I'd, I'd like to see us comparing uh, produce on nutritional value rather than on price. And I mean this at a consumer level, right? I see consumers going into our stores and saying, uh, you know, this is more expensive than what I can get at, you know, Tesco's, which is like a Costco uh, for here, right? And uh, but when you look at it from a nutritional density perspective, which is, as you said, what you, what you put into your body is hedonistic, right? It's joy, it's pleasure. But you're also in a way that, that that's money that you're spending to feed yourself and, and, and keep you healthy and alive. Uh, so surely the nutritional density- yeah, Pay the farmer or pay be. the doctor. That's what we say. Exactly. So do you see a future where we, and, and, a, and a near future where we could start communicating in terms of nutritional, nutritional density of product to consumers? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm always drawn to that because I, I, I find that with the breeding work we're doing with row seven, the nutrition is just out of control. Uh, and it's just amazing. It's amazing. We're never selecting for nutrition, never. Um, yeah, people who select for nutrition, they, they select for single nutrients so they can hang their hat on it, you know. This has, you know, this carrot has 200% more vitamin A than the standard carrot. So you can command a price for it. I find that, I find that stuff kind of dangerous um, in part because like carrots already have 2000% more vitamin A than we need. And, you know, 200 more percent of that is just going to be peed out. So I, you're paying for nothing. It's like, just eat the fucking carrot. You know, it's like, what, what are you talking about? You know? Like these single nutrients are sort of the problems. I get, I get in, I get a little bit, a little bit uh, shy about the nutrition angle because you can get reductive real quick. What is nutrition? You know, what is it? And and and, when, and it gets very complicated as you start to, to to, you know, to select for it because you don't want to go after the single nutrients. You know, like like honey nut. We talk a lot about the fact that it's three hundred percent more beta carotene per bite than a than a than a uh, than a regular butternut squash. So there's your argument. It's like, yeah, it's more money, but it's a lot more squash for your squash. <laughs> it is, uh, and we can prove it. And you can't prove taste. My problem is that you know you get too reduced and you get too funneled down the nutrition angle. You lose the the spirit of food, which is really about diversity. Because if you're if you're going to the holy grail of 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 what is the nutrition and you can define it, you keep going down that rabbit hole to define it more. So you can, it's just an endless discussion. I'm, and what the problem is, what you, what your body really needs is a diverse diversity, diversity, diversity. It's everything. And what's nice about that. It's exactly what the landscape needs. 
you know, diversity. And that's biodiversity is the single greatest uh, um, um, solution to almost all the environmental problems. And the, the issue in agriculture is you really need to eat it. You need to support it, which is why cuisine is so important. You know, why the history of studying this stuff from other cultures is so key because that's what they were forced into those negotiations. You know, you had, you had, you had to grow a lot of things. There were no monocultures. Obviously there were no chemical agriculture. You couldn't do monoculture. So, you know, but so what did that do? That forced, the creation of a pattern of eating that supported a local landscape. That's what cuisine is, you know, and what you get out of that is not only support for what the landscape could provide, which is, you know, in today's parlance, support for the farmer, uh, but it, and doing it in a regenerative approach. That's true regenerative agriculture, organic agriculture is your landscape's telling you what it needs to grow. You're growing it. And then, and then the key point of organic is that it's an organism and the organism is intimately attached to your tummy. You know, so you're the culture that, that has to support that. Otherwise, it all falls apart. If you have a culture that doesn't support it, well, then you, you, you don't have an agricultural system that remains healthy and repeatable. Um, and that's what we have in America. You know, we don't have a food culture that supports the landscape. Uh, and why it's so interesting to look around the world and study cultures and cuisines that have evolved over, over thousands of years, not 200 years in the case, 300 years in the case of the United States, it's, or 200 years, really. It's like, and that's all new. And, and when you all knew, you, that's why when we came over here from your parts of the world, you know, you landed here, you're like, you throw a seed in the ground, it's a garden of Eden. You know, you have rainfall and soil fertility. So it's like, that's, that actually has been the story of the United States since, since, you know, 1800. You know, it's like, we just kept moving west in search of more virgin soil and, and virgin soil just produces tons of food. And we became, yeah, the bread baskets of the world. Sure. You know, but we're only a couple hundred years old. Try and do that in Europe on tired soils or in Asia on tired soils. And you cannot do it. Uh, so that's what we're faced with now as we, as we look to a future where there's no beyond California uh, and fertility, soil fertility, soil productivity is running low. And it's a, it's a choice. It's a, we're at an inflection point. What do we do now to feed our population? Do it in, you know, in a, with, with something that tastes good. Uh, forget about that. That's not even in the conversation. How do you even feed the population? And, you know, it's all, so now we, the choice, like you go GMOs, you go to genetic modification to amp up, you know, get those yields continuing. Uh, or you take the opposite approach, which is what every culture has done over time, which is recognize that you can't just grow the same thing over and over and over again and expects, you know, the response from, our, our ecosphere. And that's, that's the question. That's the fork on the road. And, uh, you know, as chefs, we can, I think, lead to a path that is not only more delicious and nutritious, but also a heck of a lot more sustainable for our children, which is really the key to all of this, isn't it? Yeah. For the kids, for the planet, making sure that there's something, that there's a planet there left for them and their grandkids. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, yeah. Even now I came back from California, you know, and, and uh, seeing a lot of citrus groves where the ground is completely bare and you're just thinking, what, what is the mentality, right? Like right. weeds are not going to compete with a tree that's been there for 15 years, right? There's no germination issues. So why, why do you still think that it's the right thing to do to, you know, just have completely bare soil? And um, yeah, that, that, that mentality of, of, how we produce our food has fed into even a lot of the farming, right? And I'm not saying there's a lot of phenomenal farmers there that understand that it needs to be different. Um, but still, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ingrained, um, ingrained farming, which is, which is really bizarre.
Yeah. You know, the analogy between the landlord chef and the farmer and the owner of the land is probably yeah. extends to it's not the farmer, you know, it's the people who own the land and, and, you know, they're responding to what they see as, as, you know, as profitable. And, you know, you get the farmer and farmers never make those bad decisions. They're too close to the land, too close. They always get forced into the kind of, the kind of system because that's what the market is demanding. You know, to put blame on the farmers to do more sustainable. That's why they're also pissed off at people like us, you know, who who on the East Coast, you know, these like liberal people who are like complaining about farmers, you know, spraying chemicals. It's like, fuck you. It's like, I'm, I'm trying to just keep my land, you know, and it's the industry that's giving me no choice, you know. So so I, if I have sympathy for chefs, I have much more for farmers because the control is just. Even if you own the land, even if you own the land, your control is actually in some cases even less because it's all about the district. As you know, this, this is your business. It's all about the distributorship and the, and the channels for getting whatever you're growing out there. And, and in many, 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 many cases, there's simply just no choice. That's it. There's no choice. That's why I think seed is the place to start. You know, you know, in some ways, I just want to be like, you know, screw the screw the large corporate control of agriculture, which we should we should turn it on its head but that's not going to go anywhere unless the demand uh you know changes that paradigm and way to change demand is start with the seed because the seed dictates all the problems we just said you know all the problems of how things are grown all the way straight through to your dinner table dinner plate has to do with seed it's the determining factor so what you plant in the ground is is already you can map out where it's going and and that's the key issue. So we, we need to diversify the seed supply in a context that is modern, which says the farmer makes money doing it. And, you know, this is curated for flavor, i.e. nutrition, and we're going to create a big market demand for it. That's again, that's uh, that's why we started the seed company. I, I really believe that trying to fix the food system down the line is just too late. If they, the seed isn't there, nothing happens and this and not only that c determines everything so that's where i'm coming from here yeah i again i completely agree i i can give you a little bit of glimmer of hope that i've started to notice some of the large seed companies in europe um where flavor is slowly starting to creep back into the conversation and i know this because we uh, work with a lot of farmers particularly uh you know sicily we we do a lot of work there we have our own farm and there's a lot of activity from the, the large seed companies there. They've bought out, as you know, they've bought out a ton of the small seed companies. Uh, but what you're getting is you're getting a lot of these local satellites of the Monsantos uh, and Syngentas that were the, the, the breeders and the agronomists that are connecting with the farmers are actually now starting to talk about flavor again. Um, wow, that's again, exciting. It, it's... You know, what, what companies? You're talking about small independent companies or even in these larger seed companies? Even in the larger seed companies that have bought out these small, what, what used to be small companies in, in different areas of Sicily. So near Acate, where you've got big tomato growing, growing region, where the farming is abhorrent and the seed varieties are terrible, right? You've got these tomatoes, which, you know, grow as, as the chicken, right? Three times as fast as a tomato normally should absorb water and so forth. But what they're noticing is that flavor is starting to become part of the conversation again they're seeing it with you know the example with uh, what you've done with Wegmans 
this is a realization by mass distribution that flavor is important, right? That there is a part of the consumer out there that does care about flavor. Um, so it is, it is exciting in a way to, to, to see them, uh, I guess, revert into flavor. Um, even, in, even in France, I've had, going back to your comment about the farmers, we, we have an amazing uh, farmer, Francois, who grows beautiful root crops in, in Dunkirk, which is very sandy soil. And I remember the first time I met him, he said, you know what, like I, like I would love to grow better tasting carrots. He's like, but the market is just not there. And, and this is not, you know, this is not the Corn Belt of America. This is a small farmer in the north of France uh, seeing the impact of an industrial system and supermarket buying, uh, even, even at that scale, right? Um, and obviously he wants to, you know, come on, who doesn't want to grow vegetables that fucking it. taste good, That's right? right. Exactly. The farmer wants to grow good stuff because right. he's the first one eating it. Um, yeah. So no, there is, a, there, is some, great. there is some hope. Um, I had a question about... By, well, with by a company Deborah. like yours, there's some hope too. You know, let's not forget that. I mean, you're really carving out a path. It's very exciting. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. It certainly makes, uh, makes for an interesting, uh, interesting day job. <laughs> How does the lack of control, going back to kind of seed and, and, and row seven, um, you guys obviously, there's no patenting of seed, which probably not worth getting into in on here now, but how does the lack of control of your seed play into the future of strengthening biodiversity, which you touched on, right? How important biodiversity is for, I guess, for everything in terms of agriculture and our health and the planet. I just want to be clear that we, while we are not patenting seed, which is different from almost every other seed company, we are protecting our varieties. So we're not mm -hmm. letting them out there naked. You know, we, 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 we do have exclusives on seeds. We do. We do. We have what's called PVPs, which is which is a kind of a kind of layer of protection, which says that people can't use use our uh, uh, seeds without our knowledge, uh, etc. What we are not doing is we're not uh, patenting uh, genetic traits, and that's the key. Um, so, in other words, if a breeder say, taste the honey nut squash and says, wow, boy, I have an idea for a new kind of squash and uses the genetic material from the honey nut squash to create another squash. That's okay. That's okay. Now that is what every company in the last 10 years has thrown up big patents to protect because that's their IP and that's their R&D. You know, they've spent a lot of money and they don't want to other people to just grab off of it and go. Our position, which we're hoping to push into the mainstream culture, is that what the hell are you talking about? Seeds are 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 life. You can't patent life, you know, like that doesn't work. You can protect your investment, but you can't patent it. You you know, you know, today there's patents on purple broccoli, uh, purple cauliflower. There's there's patents on uh on uh, on purple on purple cauliflower there's there's a, there's a there was a patent a couple of years ago uh, just just two years ago on uh, something called uh, pleasant tasting melon. What the hell does that mean? It's like they they patent taste. They had a yeah they had a specific gene yeah and they got it patented. So no there's a lot there's a purple carrots but sorry it's not purple cauliflower it's purple carrots you could the color purple is patented. It's crazy it's crazy. And this is going now. It's now it's like uh, fire, you know. It's, everywhere you turn, there's patents on this, patents on that. 
lettuce, 70% of lettuce genetics are patented. 70%. You know, so if you're going out there to develop a new variety, by the way, this isn't just a new variety for like uh, you and me, for my restaurant and for your, your, your great company. Uh, what if it's a new variety for uh, disease resistance somewhere in, uh, you know, in south in the southern southern part of the United States? Or what if it's for drought resistance, you know, and it happens to attach to these genetics? Well, you can't use it. And now, at this moment, what patents and patents on genetic traits with vegetables probably ten percent. I said lettuce is seventy percent, but overall probably ten percent. But it's just it, the floodgates are now open. This is all new. And the problem with it is you're just preventing other breeders from taking the work that you're doing and pushing it forward, for pushing it forward even further uh, and adapting it, ad adapting those good traits to good causes. So that's what we, that's what we don't, but, but we do protect our varieties and protect our investment for sure. We just do it in the context of nobody owns biological life. And that's the, that's the key difference. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one hand, it's kind of food sovereignty, right? Having the ability, as you say, to utilize a trait that, um, enable somebody in a different region to be able to, you know, to, to farm and, and, and sustain that community uh, is, is, part of, is part of our human heritage. It's, it's, it, do, it shouldn't be owned by anyone. Um, is it something that was always part of the thinking when, when, when you guys were setting up Row 7, this, yeah, this yeah, idea? Of, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, the whole thing. You know, it's, an, I, it's one of those things. You know when they say if people, you're ahead of your time, you know? actually usually describes a very unhappy person, usually at the eulogy, you know, that guy, was, George was ahead of his time. That's usually like George lived a really unhappy life. Um, but we're hoping that people, you know, uh, end up like getting onto this idea because, uh, because it's, it's what you just said, it's food sovereignty. And yeah, you know, that's an issue that's going to continue to explode uh, here as we, we move forward and in the world. Um, it's about equity. It's about access, and it's about it's about history. Who really owns seed? I mean, what 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 we are uh, profiting from is thousands of years of, of of selection from communities around the world. That's what that's what new seeds are about. So, you know, I'm look. We should be making a profit because that's how the world works. But we should also be honoring the work that we had nothing to do with. And you can't throw a patent on something that God created or that you know, communities hundreds and even thousands of years ago did the painstaking work of selecting. That's just nuts. So anyway, I'm lucky to be involved with investors who feel the same way. It's such a, you know, the, the whole investment piece uh, is so critical, right, to all of this. I see it in, in our own organization. And fortunately, there's more and more investors out there that have understood the real long-term nature of capital that is required. You know, when, when we talk, at least in, 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 our, in our sphere of, you know, those of us who are, who are out there trying to, trying to have a positive impact in, on the food system, um, you know, when you're talking about farming, technology is not going to revolutionize the food system and um, things take time to grow. I mean, you know, Row 7 is, a, is the prime example, a seed company is the prime example of time, the necessity for time, right? You can't develop a variety in, you know, in a year, what is it? You need seven generations to stabilize a variety, and that's yeah. just to stabilize. Yeah, it depends on depends on what we're talking about. But yeah, that's that's right. So, the alignment of capital with 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 long term thinking and time uh, is something that is absolutely fundamental um, to the work that that all of us are doing.
without a doubt. For sure, for sure. Well, I'm glad you're fighting the fight, man, because uh, we need you. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're, we're headed in the right direction. I mean, the winds are, are you know, towards this. And you got a generation, you got millennials, but you got Generation Z or whatever. These, these people, yeah, they won't buy anything unless there's a story to it, you know? They're like, want to know that not only the, that it's organic, but like where to come from and who's going, how's it being grown? I mean, the le level of interest is, wait, imagine when these people have children. You just said it. You know, when you have children, you see things in a, you see food in a really different light. Wait till these people have children. Woof. I mean, so, so it's not like we're going back to the seventies where you and I grew up and, and, and food like that. We're not going back, you know, in the same way that we're not going back to, you know, to laws against gay marriage. I mean, it's like, we're not going back. Uh, you know, we're, we're moving forward. Question is how fast can we go? Because uh, the, the state of nutrition, the state of the environment is so poor, uh, so distraught, so fraught that that change really does need to happen soon. My hope is that it happens in that context of delight and pleasure, because I think that's how this conversation lasts beyond, uh, you know, beyond this call. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dan. And, and as, I, as I said at the beginning of this, uh, thank you so much for all the work that you've done. Um, yeah, over the last, I don't know. I won't say the number of years. Uh, yeah, don't, man, don't. No. But anyways, yeah, it's, it's, it's all very inspiring. Cheers, Franco. Thank you. I hope you'll come and, come and hang out with your family here. We're, yeah, we're I'll, I'll, you. I'll reach out and uh, I'll come soon. Please. You've been listening to Transform the Food System with Franco Fubini, an Atura podcast. The easiest way to join the food system revolution right now is to share, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. By helping us get the word out, you're adding to the community voices demanding radical change. In the next episode, we are joined by Andy Cato, the DJ turned farmer who is disrupting the growing model for cereals in the UK. He's leading an overhaul in arable farming, pushing flavor and life back into the ecosystem to forge new foundations for some of our most basic food items. 